Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how effectively is the state communicating to the public about the coronavirus? So pub quiz time, well actually Zoom quiz time is probably more appropriate. Who is Ireland's chief medical officer? Now cast your mind back to a couple of years ago, would you have known that answer then? Probably not. But now there are a whole bunch of people who have become household names because of this pandemic. Tony Holohan is obviously one of them. And he's been joined by immunologists, virologists, infectious disease experts, health correspondents, because the public is tuning into news like it never has before. And a huge part of that news cycle is the Department of Health's evening briefing. It is streamed live on Routine News Now and across lots of social media platforms. There we are given details about the death toll from COVID-19 as well as other grim realities of this terrible virus. It is horrific but also compelling viewing. Today we wanted to pull back the curtain a little for our readers to show you how these press conferences work. To do that I'll be speaking with two reporters from our newsroom who have attended these briefings most often, Michelle Hennessy and Conal Thomas. We'll also be joined by Deirdre Waldron, partner at Fusion Pure, who is going to look at how the state is communicating during this crisis. Conal, I'm going to begin with you. Can you just give me a kind of rundown of what exactly these briefings are, what's the purpose of them and when do they happen? Sure, Sinead. So basically what happens is um, they're pretty much every weekday night, Monday to Friday, sometimes depending on the circumstances, they'll, they'll hold them on Saturdays or Sundays. And what happens is they generally take place at about 5.30, 6pm every evening in the Department of Health on Baggett Street. And what that involves is basically we'll get the notification of these briefings around half, two, three from the department, and then we'll go along. And that is where we get the update on the latest figures for coronavirus cases in Ireland, as well as the latest figures for the deaths. Obviously, sadly, that has kind of gone up since the first briefing. Um, What generally happens is we'll go into a kind of a large room in the Department of Health, um, now socially distanced. That wasn't the case in the beginning, but all the reporters are kind of spaced out. And I'd say on any one night, you'd have between about you know, half a dozen and a dozen reporters there from various media outlets. And of course, it's kind of streamed live as well on um, RTE. Yeah, and they're they're different to, so these are Department of Health briefings, they're different to government and HSE ones. Yeah, they are. So this would be, these are the briefings essentially given by NEFIT, the National Public Health Emergency Team. And these are, this is the kind of the lead on the response to coronavirus in the, um, in the in Ireland. The difference, I suppose, between these briefings and, say, the HSE and the government briefings would be the HSE briefings would take place generally on a weekend morning, Saturday morning, or generally it's a Sunday morning. And that's kind of more looking at the operational side of how things are going in terms of Ireland's COVID-19 response. So the HSE briefings would involve updates from CEO Paul Reid about, say, PPE, um, how the response to, you know, uh, staffing of hospitals, the demand on hospitals, that kind of operational side of things are going. The government briefings as well would obviously have to do more with the, um, the you know, the, the, the government side of things in terms of, say, the social welfare payments, the, you know, the extension of restrictions. There are times to time where, you know, they'll kind of um, combine both. You will see Dr. Um, Tony Holland, the chief medical officer, sometimes at the government briefings. But generally, that would be only when they're announcing, say, something major that's going to affect the whole country, say, like the extension of restrictions. So these Department of Health ones that are every weekday evening, um, what are they talking about other than the death numbers and the number of new cases that day? Essentially, what normally happens is uh, Dr. Tony Holm will give us an update on the, the case figures and he'll give us an update on the death figures. And then there might be some additional info about, say, how the public are responding to the restriction measures, et cetera, et cetera. But it's generally a fairly short um, press release and update. 
where it kind of I suppose really gets interesting, and this is perhaps the, the uniqueness of these these briefings, is that then the, the floor is essentially opened to reporters to ask questions of the different um, health officials who are present at these. And obviously that could depend on, you know, various issues within that week. You know, it could be the, the discussion one week could be around, you know, how, what they're doing to tackle, tackle nursing homes, say issues with PPE, testing, you know, Dr. Killian DeGaskin, who's the medical virologist, and he's chair of the HSE's coronavirus expert advisory group. He'd be there once a week. So, for instance, on a Tuesday when Dr. DeGaskin is there, that's kind of the time where a lot of reporters will get in our questions about testing, for instance, um, if we have any regarding that. So, you know, when they give you... The, the interesting thing about I find personally about these briefings is that you know, these are officials. These aren't, you know, say, um, politicians. Um, and it's very rare you'd get a chance to quiz officials in this regard. And they're very patient, I suppose, as well, in one sense. It's very, you know, I suppose... There's there's very there's no real limit on how many questions can be asked. They'll try and give answers where they can, and that's very unusual. But I suppose it's a case that unprecedented times call for unprecedented measures in terms of what reporters uh, what reporters have access to. If that makes sense. Yeah, because for a lot of press conferences, you would be told that they're only taking three questions. So in these instances, does every single journalist there get an opportunity to ask a question? Yeah, every pretty much every journalist. Yeah, I've been there. I have been at a number of these briefings now. And generally what happens is uh, Dr. Tony Holland will say, we'll now open the floor to questions. And essentially, you kind of <laughs> queue up as you go to ask your questions. Um, obviously, in recent weeks, they've kind of had to tailor a little bit because some of these um, some of these briefings can go on for well over an hour, depending on how many questions reporters have. But I must say, you know, I think a lot of the reporters really do appreciate the patience that the, the health officials have there in terms of trying to answer all our questions. Um, I, I think they've started kind of limiting the number of questions a little bit, but I think that was probably based on the fact that more and more reporters were showing up to these briefings, which obviously shows the interest that the people of Ireland have in these briefings at the moment, if you get me. Yeah, one of the things um, I mentioned earlier was that these briefings are broadcast live and there is a huge audience. What impact does that have on a journalist asking questions that knowing that there are um, cameras that are beaming this out live to the country? Yeah, now that you say it, um, <laughs> I suppose one of the things is that you you are aware of it, but you know, it's, it's it's an interesting one. You're when you are at these briefings, and and if you do have, say, you know, two, three, maybe four, a number of follow up questions that you know you really want to ask, you really want to get to the to the bottom of, you, you kind of try and put it out of your head because that's your main focus. And and obviously, if if an official isn't answering your question, you're you're going to want to get an answer to it, so you keep going. I suppose just in terms of practically, you know, the fact that these are being live streamed. To, you know, thousands of people around the country are so interested in these moments. You're obviously very con- conscious of them um, speaking very clearly um, and, 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 and it's asking intelligent questions, not just for the sake of seeming intelligent, but for the sake of, you know, trying to inform the public who are watching it live um, what you, you know, that what you're asking is relevant, I suppose. Um, so speaking clearly is an important one. I remember a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Colm Henry um couldn't hear me neither could Tony and I felt a little embarrassed they had to clarify they couldn't hear me and someone who's a bit deaf myself I thought oh god I really need to kind of you know speak a bit louder at these things but you know it's kind of all practice I suppose yeah and from an editor's just to wear my editor's hat Conal from my point of view the live streaming means that journalists have to be really conscious of our defamation and and uh, laws and our the legal constraints that they're under when asking questions I think something that maybe the public um would be interested to hear more about um let's get to the who's who 
Um, so I think pe- most people are aware Tony Holden is the chief medical officer. Do you have any more of a bio on him for us? Yeah, well, it's was Tony Holden has been Ireland's chief medical officer since 2008. So he's been in the role, you know, well over a decade now. And as you said, kind of at the start, I suppose, you know, most people, a lot of people presumably hadn't heard of Dr. Holden until, you know, early March. He's only the second person actually to, to ever hold the CMO job after the position was created in 1997. And essentially, the chief medical officer is the most senior government member on health-related matters in Ireland is probably the best way of putting it. Um, previously, I suppose Dr. Holland would have, you know, uh, may have been in the public eye in the middle of the um, the cervical check controversy. He's he's kind of well known that when uh, campaigner Vicky Phelan publicly criticised the cervical check outside the High Court, Holland actually advised Minister of Health Simon Harris to basically not undertake an external review of the screening programme, but asked that Dr. Holland be uh, allowed to prepare a report himself. So that was probably the only time people had really heard of him in that kind of context, if that makes sense. There, and obviously there's... Um, Another other you know senior officials who joined Dr. Holland at these briefings, so you'd have all you'd always have Dr. Tony Holland, the chief medical officer, next to him on the right would all I should say to his left would be Dr. Roman Glynn. He's the deputy CMO. Uh, he's the head of the health protection unit of the Department of Health. Uh, Dr. Glynn is always he's a constant presence, like Dr. Holland at these um, briefings. Uh, another kind of constant presence would be Dr. Colin Henry. Uh, he's the chief clinical officer with HSE, and I suppose he'd be the foremost figure present to these briefings from the HSE. I mentioned earlier about the briefings in the morning at the HSE where the CEO, Paul Reid, would give an update on the operational aspect of these things. Dr. Colm Henry is kind of a lot more involved on the ground in a hospital and acute setting and in terms of care homes and nursing homes. So if people have questions around them, they're generally directed at Dr. Colm Henry. I mentioned Dr. Killian Degaskin, an interesting one. He's a medical virologist. He's chair of the HSE's Coronavirus Expert Advisory Group and he comes to these briefings every Tuesday. And I said, if in one particular week testing is a big issue and there are a lot of questions outstanding for reporters or the general public, um, he's the kind of the man to ask. Also, he's always very responsive to questions and really does try and give the best answers he can. He can. Um, there's another few people as well, it might be worth just mentioning. There's Professor Philip Nolan, who would show up, I'd say, once every three weeks at these um, briefings. He's the chair of the Irish Epidemiological Modelling Group. He's the president of Maynooth University. And he's, he's a very interesting man because a lot of what, I suppose, the National Public Health Emergency Team have been doing in terms of the decisions they've been making, in terms of advising the government on what restrictions should be put in place, how often they should be in place for when they should be extended and when not, is based on this modelling. So Professor Philip Nolan heads up this modelling team that basically tries to track how the virus is spreading across Ireland and how the case figures are going up or down or what the predictions are. We saw a couple of weeks Dr. Philip Nolan come in and say, essentially, because of the restrictions we had, we're not going to see that 15,000 case figure that the Taoiseach mentioned, I believe, and I think it was mid-April that that, or early April, that's what we're predicting. Yeah, we've been seeing him on Thursdays. I think the reproductive number has been his, his big thing on a Thursday. There's more of a supporting cast as well that we see a little less frequently. There is. There's mostly HSE officials. There's Shivani Breen, who's the HSE's National Clinical Advisor. Um, she's also the Group Lead for Mental Health. There's Liam Woods, HSE National Director of Acute Hospital Divisions. There's also Brita Smith, she's the HSE Director of Public Health, John Cuddihy, uh, another HSE Director of Public Health, and Siobhan O'Sullivan, who's the Chief, 
chief bioethics officer at the Department of Health. You know, it's interesting the way they, these briefings run as much as it's quite clear that uh, from, a, I suppose, a public relations or a communications point of view, they try to bring in the people who perhaps are most relevant in that particular moment to try, I suppose, anticipate what kind of questions the public are going to want to answer, uh, going to want to see an answer by these people. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole cast of characters that people are kind of becoming familiar with over time now at the moment. Um, and, you know, by the looks of it, we'll be familiar with for quite a long time, you know, for certainly the foreseeable anyway. Cheers for that, Conal. And as I mentioned at the start, uh, Michelle Hennessy is one of our reporters who has been going to these briefings most often so she's going to just give us a little flavor um, of what it's like actually being there now. I've just arrived for the latest Department of Health briefing in Dublin City Centre. Um, I usually arrive quite early at the, the briefings, uh, there's a bit of politics involved in it sometimes so it usually starts about 5.30, I get here at least a half an hour early, uh, get the hand sanitizer on the hands and then claim a seat because they're in demand. There's only a small number because they've put in place social distancing measures in the briefing room. Um, the, the seats are, are quite spaced out and there's only a certain number of, of cameras and then photographers who are allowed into the room at the one time. Uh, and there are also good seats and bad seats is what I've learned. The closer you are to the door, uh, the, the sooner you are likely to get your hands on the press release with the latest figures and the sooner you can get the, the news back to your news desk. When I say news desk, there isn't actually a news desk now since we're all working from home. Um, it just means that I can, I can get it to my colleagues as quickly as possible. So we'll see what happens this evening. Just to let you know, that audio was recorded on Tuesday night. Uh, Michelle sat through that briefing and it's now Wednesday afternoon and we're going to ask her about how the briefings have been going this week. Well, it hasn't been uh, particularly exciting and that's a weird word to use for it but it hasn't been a particularly exciting week I mean yesterday the questions were all kind of varied in previous weeks we had we usually had some kind of a, a big news thing that's happened that week now it hasn't we haven't really had that this week yesterday um, we got an update on testing numbers and previously we would have had big issues that we were asking questions on like testing delays that's kind of been sorted out at the moment um, and you know we're kind of moving on from, from the nursing home story to a certain extent now that they're testing everybody in them so it, it, there wasn't any kind of big breakout story from, from last night's briefing. Do we know who's going to be at the briefing? Yeah we do so uh, we got the note in about this evening's briefing starting at half five or hopefully starting at half five because they delay them all the time and um, tonight's is uh, obviously the CMO Dr Tony Hulahan will be there and his deputy CMO Dr Ronald Lynn We'll also have um, Dr. Maureen Ryan from HICWA because they did, they were asked by the Minister for Health to do an assessment of all the tests that are available. I presume to see whether the current way that we're testing is the best way to do it. It's the gold standard, as been described by the WHO, that we're doing at the moment. Uh, and also to look into antibody testing to test for immunity. You can hear Michelle um, every evening asking questions of Tony Holohan and co. If you tune into those um, health briefings, they're usually at half five and they're usually on RT News Now and streamed on Twitter by the Department of Health as well. Uh, we're going to now go to Deirdre Waldron, who is a partner at Fusion PR, who specialise in crisis communications um, for their clients. Deirdre, my first question I wanted to ask you is, is this crisis communications are we in the middle of a crisis um for the state yeah i think it's it's textbook crisis pr and crisis communications because what we have here is it's changing daily and um we're talking about the government and their reaction it's 
even if things go on an even keel, until we find um, a solution to this virus and an antidote to it, um, we're still going to be in crisis mode because you never know what's going to come around the corner and what the escalation is. A big part of crisis communications is preparing for the escalation. Okay, we've sorted A out, but what happens if B, C or D happens? And we have to be prepared for that. So for me, if it was my client, I'd be advising them to stay in on on crisis uh, mode, you know. But if we're looking at, say, the Department of Health and the HSE's approach, what would be the important elements um, in crisis prior that they'd have to make sure that they had examined and um, worked through? Yeah, sure. So I think the most important elements and to prepare people for it and the things that they need to work through is um, preparing holding statements, preparing statements that anticipating the questions that might need to be answered. Um, it would be very important with those statements and with any communications that you're as transparent as possible. Um, you want to give honest reassurance so that you're building up trust with your audience, be that the media or the general public or both. Um, for the government, um, it's very important that they have those in this instance, that they have those health experts alongside them and make it clear that they are taking the lead from the experts and making decisions, um, especially in this instance where the health of the nation has to be paramount. How effective do you think those meetings that we're having every evening are? For me, looking at it on the outside in, I think they've been really effective, especially when you compare other countries. I think in this instance, what the government are doing they're facilitating the government and media working well together and generally the public are reassured by this and with the constant daily briefings they're sharing information but without it becoming sensationalism um, the government briefings all, always seem to include experts not just the politicians and that's been really good and refreshing so for, for me looking at it outside in there seems to be very little politics at work even with the opposition um, and the meetings are all backed up with really strong collateral. So you've got graphs and infographics, slides, and it's all consistent and it's shared across all platforms and it's easy to understand and to access. So I think they're really doing a, from the outside in, looking at uh, doing a really good job by having the daily briefings. They've shown like the various initiatives they're introducing. So day by day, the progress so that um, they are now, they're more in control of the messaging. Yeah, you mentioned there of not being sensationalized. Is that why being transparent is so important? Because the truth will out eventually, so you're better off telling it yourself? Big time. That's You hit the nail on the head. And if you see in other countries, when they weren't as transparent, um, media tend to go in and sensationalize things um, because they don't there you don't have that relationship of trust between the government and the media that you have going on at the moment like we've heard from even local media that they've been in uh, in on briefings with the government um so there's this even relationship regionally which has built up great trust with the media and you mentioned other countries there. Are there big mistakes that can often happen with in dealing with crisis communications that are being made in other countries? Definitely. I mean, and it, again, this is like, it, it's just textbook how to do things and how not to do things and how not to do things is just doing a Trump on it or, you know, coming in second. And that is Boris Johnson. If you look at the two of them, particularly, um, when this um, crisis first um, came about, 
Um, it shows you how not to do things. Um, the example they've shown their people has been deplorable, like Boris shaking hands with coronavirus patients, Trump really inciting discord in states, almost a call to action uh, against the lockdown measures and giving press briefings without practicing social distancing. He even at the beginning called the, the crisis a democratic hoax. Um, you know, so all of these things, he's bringing politics in it. He's not showing, um, uh, giving a good example by uh, practicing social distancing. And a big thing is the misuse of language, which we haven't gotten too wrong here, because we're talking about cocooning rather than isolating. Um, a big thing in the UK, you might remember when they um, let slip about herd um, immunity, and that slipped out at a, a press conference by one of their medical experts. And it gave rise to a huge amount of speculation around a government policy, which was more or less saying three quarters of the country could fall foul of the virus. And it was that use of language um, was very frightening to the public in the UK. If you have a client coming to you with a crisis, what are the, the main things that you warn them against? What do you say if Whatever you do, do not do this. Is there any kind of clear rules? I think it goes back to um, being really transparent, as transparent as you can be. If it, even if it isn't good news, um, it generates trust and reassurance. If there is bad news, it's best to hear it from the first-hand source so that there can be some control with the messaging. And, and that's a big, important thing when I'm talking to my clients it's that being transparent if you can. It's being prepared. And as soon as you know there's going to be a crisis coming down the line, preparing for it. Because a lot of work that we would do with, with clients, it's crisis communication workshops. So before there's even a hint of anything um, coming down the line, we would have our clients prepared for it. And we would have things ready like holding statements. Who's the team that's going to be in place? Who's going to have control over um, the social media? Because often you need to get hold of the social media accounts and it could be um, at a weekend. And um, again, going back to the big thing is being as transparent as possible because that will build up trust with the media um, and, with the, um, and with the general public. Yeah, it's obviously social media has changed your business, but it's obviously changed the business of governing as well, because we've seen a lot of the communication from the government, particularly the health minister, Simon Harris, happening on Twitter. Oh, big time. Like, I remember watching that and my other half, Greg, who works in Fusion with me, and he would be more into the digital side of things than I am. But all obviously, all of us now are glued to our phones the whole time. At first, he was really cynical when I was telling him about Simon Harris and him broadcasting every night. But then when he looked at it, um, it was he wasn't just doing it for his own um, profession, personal brand. It was refreshing to see him answer questions from people live. Um, he's making it about engagement with, with people, not just broadcasting. So it's a two way conversation. And if you see the comments afterwards, it's like, thanks for being honest with us, even if it isn't good news he's portraying. They're teasing him about his hair things like that. And another really great person um, that I wasn't even aware of before this, but he's come across so well on social media, on Twitter, the way he communicates is Paul Reed. Um, you might remember a few weeks ago, Paddy Cosgrove came out with some negativity towards Paul. And um, Paul has built up such a positive collateral on Twitter for being honest and being human that Twitter came to his um, defense in a big way. 
Paul replied to Paddy's negativity in an honest and transparent way and got nearly 10,000 likes. And for me, I didn't think that was bad. In the middle of a health crisis from the CEO of HSE to get 10,000 likes on Twitter. So the world is definitely spinning on its axis. Just before I let you go, Deirdre, um, in terms of other countries, um, you know, we t- touched a little bit on the US and, and the UK there, but what, how are other countries communicating uh, to their people? Well, uh, Fusion are part of a European-wide network of crisis communications agencies called CCNE. And our European colleagues are telling us um, that looking from um, outside, our government have performed really well. Um, in Spain and Italy, there is much distrust of the government and a sense that they did not act in a timely fashion. And their inactions and lack of property proper briefings maybe cause such a severe peak in cases and deaths. Our colleagues in these countries also mentioned how the press did not work with government and were sensationalizing the issues rather than focusing on reporting the facts. Um, they are also telling me that objective reporting in Italy and, and Spain in particular is very scarce. Panel discussions on TV lack experts and are full of politicians. And the official media is not often helping Um, in Italy to reassure people. In Spain, um, the opposition are using the issues around defective PPE as ammunition against the government, whereas in Ireland, um, we admitted, or the government admitted they had made mistakes in the first um, batch of stuff to come from China, but we forgave them straight away because they admitted there was a mistake, whereas in Italy, um, you hadn't that working with the media and government that um, so everyone was sensationalizing what was happening there countries like Austria and Belgium Denmark and Germany in general my colleagues there feel that their governments acted proactively that they communicated well to the public and that the press worked really well in supporting the initiatives that were place uh, in place to uh, deal with the pandemic um, the um, the government in Germany um, uh, they took a stance to be strict um, now with fewer m- mortalities, but the public um, didn't argue against this. And most mentioned the supports that the governments have made in keeping people in employment. Uh, interesting thing, um, our Belgium colleague said that they've got a crisis communications team in place the whole time. So they ask professionals to volunteer as soon as there's a crisis, these professionals stop what they're doing and help out the government pro bono, um, which I thought was interesting. So one of the colleagues I was talking to, she spends two days a week working with the government on crisis communications and strategic planning. The final thing was in Denmark, um, somebody mentioned the press briefings by ministers and the top civil servants have hap- been happening on a daily basis for the last six weeks. They have been perceived very positive to begin with. But as the country moves forward, uh, no real answers as to where we're going now and when we're turning to normal. Um, so there's some scepticism setting in now because the government aren't seen to be um, as proactive as they were at the beginning. Yeah, that's the big question for everybody, I think. like, uh, And nobody has a crystal ball. When are we getting back to normal? And I'm not sure there is a, a new normal. Thanks so much, Deirdre, for joining us on The Explainer. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Conal, Michelle and Deirdre for their time and work. Now, if you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few days for you to support our journalism. 
It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fall drastically, but we are and want to keep providing you and the rest of our 830,000 daily users with valuable, accessible journalism. If you feel it's important for society to have that open access to news and good information, like this podcast, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time. Thank you.